0: Hi there. You're listening to Lindisfarne Anglican Church's Sermon Podcast, the place where you can hear God's Word preached if you weren't able to join us at one of our services during the week. My prayer for you today is that as you listen to this message, you'd be challenged, encouraged, and equipped to live as a disciple of Christ in the world. May God richly bless you as you listen to this message today. Well, when we see true humility, it is inspiring, isn't it? Uh, John Dixon, in his book Humilitas, defines humility as the noble choice to forgo your status, deploy your resources, or use your influence for the good of others before yourself. And uh, we know from experience that when we see those who are of much resource, the rich, the powerful, when we see people like that doing things that they ought not to do or that they indeed don't need to do uh, and they do those things to benefit uh, others, that that is an indeedly powerful thing. And of course the best stories of humility are the ones that go untold but nonetheless I thought I'd tell one Anyhow, And so uh, I remember very vividly when I first moved to Melbourne and started studying at college uh, that uh, the principal of co- at the college at the time, whose name was Peter Adam, uh, would gather a small group of us first-year students into his home each week. Uh, and uh, I thought that was quite... Uh, Amazing, Uh, The principal uh, and, you know, world-renowned theologian and speaker could have done many other things apart from spend an hour with me each week. But he did, uh, and about 12 other people. And he would make us tea and he would bake us cakes and he wouldn't let us help him clean up. Uh, And he would do all of that because he wanted to invest in us and help us to grow in our knowledge and love of God. And, of course, to model, I think, humble servant leadership. It's a truly powerful thing when you see it in action, and there are many more stories I'm sure you or I could share where we've been in the presence of uh, humility in action. Well, uh, we come to Luke seven today. Uh, you might have picked up what I'm doing is when we're not in a series, uh, and I've got some time to spare, we're trying to work our way through Luke's gospel. So we did uh, a little bit of time in Luke's chapter six. Uh, we're going to do Luke chapter seven. Today, because we had a week uh, in between uh, uh, Christmas and next week, when we'll start a four week series on uh, n- living a new life in Christ, new year, new you. But for now, we come to the next part of Luke's Gospel uh, that we had read to us this morning. And you'll remember that it follows on from that sermon that Jesus preached in chapter 6. A sermon that was a call for us to have radical trust and uh, radical obedience to him and radical reliance on him so that we could live the kind of radically different life that Jesus calls us to where uh, we find ourselves uh, uh, supernaturally empowered by him to do the kind of things he talks about, like uh, pulling the, not judging without pulling the speck out of our own eye first or uh, turning the other cheek or loving our enemies. These sorts of things that seem impossible to us become possible when we trust him, obey him, and he empowers us to do it. Well, this sermon that Jesus preached is followed By these two stories that we had in our reading today, two stories that show us uh, the act of responding to Jesus in the centurion story with uh, with, with humility, and then a story about God's powerful grace, which can transform us with the raising of the widow's son. So let's take a look at them and see what we can learn. First, we have the humble centurion uh, from verses 1 to 10 of chapter 7. We see in the opening verses, when Jesus had finished saying all these things to the people who were listening, so he finished his sermon, he entered Capernaum, and there a centurion's servant, whom his master valued highly, was ill and about to die. The centurion heard of Jesus and sent some elders of the Jews to him, asking him to come and heal his servant. Now, Centurion uh, is, uh, as the name suggests, uh, a commander in the, in the Roman army who's in charge of 100 soldiers, hence the name Centurion. Uh, and uh, this man, having been uh, in command of these soldiers, was a reasonably important person. Uh, he would have been a big deal in Capernaum in charge of its security, perhaps even more. And uh, the very fact uh, that we see it first that he has care for his servant. So his servant is sick and he's concerned enough about this to uh, uh, try and find some help for the servant is an initial sign to us of the kind of man that this centurion is. He he very easily, couldn't he, have simply let the servant die and get another one. But that's not what he's chosen to do. He's chosen to do what he can uh, to try and help this servant. And so he hears that Jesus is in town. He knows uh, something of uh, who Jesus is and his uh, power to heal. And so he does something interesting, doesn't he? Uh, Again, uh, 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 giving us an insight into the kind of man he is. Uh, He doesn't decide, well, I'm a centurion. I'll rock on down to Jesus and say, Oi, can you come and heal my servant, please? no. He goes to the Jewish elders in the town, Uh, the Roman centurion, probably not uh, a Jew. Jew. So he goes to someone who is of the same kind of race as Jesus and he says to them, Hey, can you do me a favour? Can you go and talk to that Jewish healer who I've heard about? And can you see if he'll uh, heal my servant? So he gets the Jewish elders to go and ask Jesus and they go and we read in verses four and five what they say. They come to Jesus, they pleaded earnestly with him, this man deserves to have you do this because he loves our nation and he has built our synagogue. As far as the Jewish elders are concerned, this man deserves help because he is a man who has proven his worth. He's done good deeds. He loves the people. He's a great leader. He's even provided money and helped to build the synagogue. The elders get to Jesus and say, can you please help this man for he deserves it. And Jesus goes with them. Uh, and of course, as he's approaching the centurion's house, uh, the centurion's gone and got some more people uh, to go and uh, see Jesus a second time. And so as Jesus is approaching and he's not far from the house, we read in verse six, uh, the friends who he sent say, Lord, don't trouble yourself, for I, must, for I do not deserve to have you come under my roof. That is why I did not even consider myself worthy to come to you. But say the word and my servant will be healed. You see, here is a man who, by uh, rights, by the, by the Jewish elders' point of view, deserves it. He deserves someone like Jesus to turn up and heal him. I mean, he loves the nation. He's built the synagogue. Not only that, but he's a military man with rank and status. And yet, here in the face of Jesus, he considers himself unworthy to have Jesus let, come into his house, let alone come out himself and meet him in the street. And so, having uh, said to Jesus, uh, You are greater than me, I am not worthy, he gives uh, Jesus these words via uh, uh, his friends in verse 8 I myself am a man under authority with soldiers under me. I tell this one, Go and he goes, and that one, Come and he comes. And I say to my servant, Do this, and he does it. And Jesus is amazed by what he sees. He's amazed at this humble faith. And so he says in verse 9, Jesus says, He was amazed at him and he turned to the crowd following him and said, I tell you, I have not found such great faith as this even in Israel. This is humble faith when you're faced with the majesty of Jesus. And we've seen this kind of faith before in Luke's gospel. In chapter 5, when Jesus calls his disciples, he meets them on the beach as they're finishing their fishing for the day, for the evening, uh, and uh, he goes puts himself out uh, in their boats to teach the large crafts. And there, uh, Simon Peter uh, is with them, hits his boat, uh, and after he's finished teaching, uh, Jesus says, hey, fellas, why don't you chuck the nets down and see what you catch? And we read in that story about how Peter's like, no, that's a bad idea. We haven't caught much today and this is a bad time to go fishing. And yet, they obey Jesus. They put their nets down. They catch the biggest haul of fish they've ever caught in their life. And Peter uh, now is sitting in this boat faced with the majesty of this man who can control the fish in the sea. And what does he do? Again, he has a a, a humble reaction to being in the presence of the Lord Jesus. Verse 8 of chapter 5. When Simon Peter saw this, he fell at Jesus' knees and said, Go away from me, Lord, for I am a sinful man. It's different to what the centurion does, but they are both acts of deep humility in the face of Jesus, knowing that he is the one who can control creation, that he is the one who can heal the sick. And we'll think more about humility and what that means for us In a moment, but let's just carry on uh, as the uh, Luke does uh, with the very next story. For in chapter seven, verses eleven to seventeen, Jesus comes upon this Jewish funeral in the town of Nain. Now, I remember uh, when Elisa and I went to India uh, many years ago, and we went to the town of Varanasi, which is one of the holiest cities there. And this is the sort of town where, if you're a Hindu, you try and get yourself cremated on the riverbanks and uh, scattered into the holy river, the Ganges. So what that means, if you're a tourist, is when you find yourself on the riverbank near uh, the cremation sites and you want to go up to sort of the main part of town, as you twist and turn your way up through alleyways, you literally have to sort of dive out of the way of people bringing bodies down. Uh, It happened to us at least once or twice uh, where uh, all of a sudden we'd hear some noise and then there would be a group of people carrying someone down to be cremated. Now, uh, I'm sure the town of Nain was not the holy town where everyone was getting uh, buried as Jews, but nonetheless, people died and I assume that this was the sort of thing that you would see uh, from time to time. Jesus uh, is in this town, they're walking along and they come across this fume. And we know from the story, don't we, that it's the funeral of a son, the funeral of the son of a widow. And for a widow to lose her only son, tragic enough, but in Jesus' day, disastrous. For this was uh, going to mean for this woman, now no husband, no son, that she was now destitute. And so Jesus is moved by this situation that he comes upon. And he seeks uh, in compassion to rectify it. He walks up to the dead man and he says, get up. And instantaneously, we read in verse 15, the dead man sat up and began to talk and Jesus gave him back to his mother. And the people we read in verse 16 are absolutely amazed by this and they call Jesus a great prophet. And you might remember the reading that Henry Uh, Read to us is a story about a prophet raising a boy to life in One Kings seventeen, and we also know in Two Kings four, Elisha, another great prophet, raises a a boy to life. These are similar miracles done by great prophets that the people who witnessed what Jesus just did would be aware of. They would have grown up knowing these stories, and so when they see Jesus raise someone from the dead in front of their eyes, they think, "Wow, this man is a prophet." The people in this point don't have clarity about who Jesus is. But they are certainly amazed by what he can do. They certainly think he is a man of God. And we see uh, as uh, chapter 7 unfolds uh, in the later verses that in fact these are signs for John the Baptist... Uh, that Jesus used to to tell John the Baptist about what is happening, that he indeed is the Messiah. But even John the Baptist isn't quite sure about what's happening and we'll come to that uh, uh, at later times. But Luke's included these two stories to help us uh, see the unfolding of his identity to people as the Messiah, even if both the centurion and the people who witnessed the raising uh, of the boy aren't quite sure what's going on. We're putting that aside to one moment. In both these stories, we see Jesus demonstrating his power to heal and raise someone from death to life. And I think we see a couple of things that I thought pertinent for us to focus on as we mark the end of uh, our gatherings together for 2018 and look forward to what uh, might be in the year ahead. I think that we see uh, in this story... Uh, an encouragement for us to be humble like the centurion and to be people who trust God's powerful grace. Let me unpack those uh, two things a little more. First, we need humility. We need to be humble like the centurion. Of course, all of us ought to approach God in the same manner the centurion did or in the manner that Peter does when he comes face to face with the holiness of Jesus None of us deserve God's love. None of us deserve God's salvation. And yet we find God pours it out upon us anywhere. See, the centurion is a man who, despite his worldly success, is only too aware of his inadequacy before God. He knows... That worldly success only gets you so far and there are things that he cannot control and he's aware that there's this man, Jesus, who can. And so he humbles himself before him. Does he truly have faith and trust that the Lord Jesus is the Messiah? We don't know. Maybe he came to faith later. We don't know from this story. But we do know that he was one who was willing to humble himself before greatness, before the Lord. Now, the centurion's humility here actually points us ultimately, I think, to Jesus' humility, the humility that we've been remembering last week uh, as we've reflected on Christmas. For in Jesus we have the one who forgoes all the glory and honour due to him and takes on flesh, becoming man, and chooses in his life to teach us how to truly live and die to enable us to make to live that kind of life. He acts in our interest, dying so that we might live. He acts for our benefit. He deploys his considerable resources as God for us. And in response, we're called to humility. Just as Jesus did. Just as the centurion did. What does this look like for us as we head into 2019? I think if we think back to that definition of humility that I gave at the start from John Dixon's book, Humilitas, the noble choice to forgo your status, deploy your resources or use your influence for the good of others before yourself, then I think there's a couple of things we can reflect on as to what it means for us to be humble people who've responded to Jesus this coming year. First of all, that idea of forgoing status. Of course, as people who follow Jesus, the one who forego the greatest status for our good, we ought to be people who are willing to forego our own status. And as I was saying to the nine o'clock congregation this morning, I think that the longer that you've lived on this earth in Western culture, uh, the harder it can be for us to uh, get our heads around this. For I think that uh, one of the big problems we have as a church is we're trying to hold on to status that we once had that we no longer do. Uh, And we're trying to operate in society from a place of having a status that we once had that we no longer do. So if you get to my age or younger, uh, uh, it's not that hard to realise that we don't have any status anymore. Uh, n- no one has ever said to me, who's, my, who's sort of of my age, "Wow, you're a priest in the church. Can I be like your friend?" Uh, like that's never happened to me. Uh, I've got laughed at a lot. Uh, I've got called silly a lot. But do you know who does act like that around me? My grandmother. She's got two priests, son and grandson, and she thinks that's super cool Uh, because she's kind of caught up in uh, this kind of 1950s world. We don't have the kind of status we used to have. And when we try and hold on to status we no longer have, we look foolish. We are not being humble, for we should have foregone it when we had it. And we need to remember that in fact being without status is exactly what we're called to. Now, uh, this works, I think, as well for all of us, not just those of us who have positions in churches which once had status, but all of us. All of us have status. We all have status that we're afraid to get rid of. We all have status amongst our friends, amongst our families, uh, and that status is always at risk. Whenever we dare to stick our heads up and say something about Jesus, we risk losing face, losing status. And of course, if we're humble, if we're people of humble faith, then we need to be willing to do that. Because humble faith lets go of our status... And chooses to trust the Jesus, who we read about in these stories, who can heal the sick and raise the dead. He can certainly look after you if your friends think you're a fool because you trust the Lord Jesus and you told them about it. He can certainly look after you if you're arrested and killed because you trust the Lord Jesus. Humble faith lets go of status and seeks to simply declare before all our simple trust in the Saviour of the world. I think the other thing that we have to remember too is that uh, it's very easy for us to communicate with arrogance because we know the truth. We do know the truth. Jesus died so that we could live. That's the truth. But of course we live in a world where absolute claims to truth are seen as arrogant and so we need to think about how we speak as people of humble faith who speak to a culture that sees truth claims as arrogant. We need to really work hard at entering into dialogue with people and uh, sharing our perspectives and our experiences of God at work in our life and pointing them to how those experiences show the truth of what God has done for us. Humble faith, forgoing our status, seeking to uh, live lives that point to the humble Saviour and seeking to engage well, trusting that our Lord Jesus has got this. So we forgo status. Finally, the other thing we see in that definition of humility, which I think we see in the centurion story, is deploying resources and influence for the good of others. The centurion is deploying his resources to get someone to heal his servant. The servant has no resources. He's reliant on the centurion to do that humble act for him. And so we too, as humble followers of the Lord Jesus... Or to be willing to deploy the gifts and skills and resources God has given us to serve him. See, I don't know what it is that you're good at. I don't know how exactly you've been blessed financially or otherwise. But I do know this, that whatever you do have is not for you. It's for glorifying the Lord Jesus. Jesus. And so you need to think about how you can deploy those gifts and resources for the good of others and the glorification of Jesus. For that is humble faith, using the things that you have for the good of others. So we need to be people of humility. Finally, we need to be people who are mindful that we work in the powerful grace of God. And we need to be known as people of grace. When Jesus is walking along and he sees this widow in need, he has compassion on her, he reaches out and he raises her son back to life. This is God's powerful grace at work. The same powerful grace that has raised you and me, if we trust in the Lord Jesus, back to life. We desperately want to see God's powerful grace spread throughout our friends, our family, our community. And we know, don't we, that out there today, outside the walls of this church, is a world full of people who need the powerful grace of God in their lives. There are people out there who are struggling. There are people out there who aren't struggling, but they, uh, they still need the grace of God. Our community is full of people with a big problem. They are alienated from God and they are filling up their lives with all sorts of things that only God can satisfy. I take it that the widow didn't know that Jesus could help her and yet as she encounters the Lord Jesus, uh, as, as he sees her need... Uh, His powerful grace overwhelms her and her situation and gives her what she needs in that moment. Her son raised to life. We need to ask God to work powerfully in the lives of our community and we need to be ready to see where and when he's going to go to work. God will work his powerful grace in the lives of our community. And he's calling us to humbly go and see what he's up to as he transforms lives and as he uses us as his instruments of transformation. Well, if Jesus can heal the sick, if Jesus can raise the dead, if Jesus can do all of those things, he can certainly radically transform your life and mine and the lives of those in the in the. Parish of Lindisfarne. Without God, we can do none of what we hope in 2019. So I pray that you'll join with me in making 2019 a year of humble faith, seeking God's powerful grace to work in wonderful ways that we're not even aware of or thinking of, that will see God do powerful things through this church. We know the truth, that God loves each and every one of us, that he loves the people of Lindisfarne, and that he will pour out his powerful grace, and we need to simply submit ourselves humbly to him and follow where he leads. Let's do that this coming year. Amen. Hey there. Thanks so much for listening to this message today. I hope you were encouraged by God as he spoke to you by his Holy Spirit. Please head to our website if you'd like more information about our church, www.lindisfarneanglican.org.au or like us on Facebook by searching Lindisfarne Anglican. We are a church for Lindisfarne, making disciples of Jesus. God bless.